0: Well, it's been a while, and after sampling a pub or two on the other side of the world, I'm back with more episodes, and I'm back with stories of pubs. Hi, and welcome back to the Historical Crimes and Criminals Podcast. I'm Steve, your host. And well, I can tell you, this is the most tanned this Scotsman's ever been in his life. As now, I'm living out in the Philippines. And no, I'm not on run from the Tartan Mafia. After 20 years in London, I fancied a completely different change of lifestyle. And where better than in one of the friendliest countries in the world? And and the episodes won't be weekly, I won't ever stop doing them, they'll just be a little bit more sporadic and random, so keep subscribed to have that nice surprise pop up. And there's never a quiet place to record in the Philippines, especially in central Manila. What can you do? If you hear some background noises, traffic, I can't edit out all of them. And I've also started a YouTube channel, Exploring Manila, especially the back streets. And if you want to see it, just go on YouTube, type Steve Walks Manila. Old dog, new tricks and all that. And this episode is dedicated to Jules from Zurich in Switzerland, who sent me a message asking when the next episode was, well, wait no longer. And we'll keep it Swiss for our first pub. And it's an area of London that was actually named after a pub. That is, Swiss Cottage. The district is named after an inn called the Swiss Tavern that was built in 1804 in the style of a Swiss chalet on the site of a former tollkeeper's cottage. The tavern was later renamed Swiss Inn and then again in the early 20th century Swiss Cottage. And it's now called Ye Old Swiss Cottage, and this Samuel Smith pub is lovely and well worth a visit, if in the area. And whilst we're talking about Swiss Cottage, it's a double shout out this episode, this time to my friend Dr. Michael, another Scotsman who refuses to let his body give up when it comes to football. And after multiple Burst Achilles problems, He's been reduced to walking football in Swiss Cottage with other cripples and pensioners. And Michael informs me he's the star man. One of my favourite London pubs is the Angel in Rotherhide. Nestled on the banks of the Thames with its spectacular views of Tower Bridge, the pub dates back to the 15th century when the monks of Bermondsey Abbey used to keep a tavern here. It was originally known as the Salutation, but after the Reformation, this name was changed to the Angel. Part of the inn is built on piles over the river, and there are trap doors in the floor, which must have been useful to local smugglers. Samuel Pepys was a regular visitor, and mentions it in his diaries. In one of the bars... There's a contract dated 1682, by which the house was sold for £500. The infamous Judge Jeffreys is said to have sat here to watch pirates being hanged at Execution Dock opposite. And in Wapping, near Execution Dock, is Turner's old star. Joseph Turner is one of Britain's greatest painters, and although... Never married, he had a passion for the ladies, and from the age of 25, he was to keep several mistresses who were to bear him four illegitimate children. His vigorously sensual side was to emerge in the copious quantities of erotic drawings. These were supposedly executed during the weekends of drunken debauchery amid these dockside taverns and whopping In 1833, Turner met Sophia Booth, a widowed landlady from Margate, who was to become his mistress until his death in 1851. And when Turner inherited two cottages in the Dockland area of Wapping, he converted them into a tavern and installed Mrs. Booth as the proprietor. He named the tavern The Old Star. And in 1987, the pub was renamed Turner's Old Star. There are many Marquis of Granby pubs throughout the UK, and they're all named in honour of one man. And here's why. Lieutenant General John Manners, Marquis of Granby, was born on the 2nd of January, 1721, and he was a British soldier and the eldest son of the third Duke of Rutland. As he did not outlive his father and inherit the dukedom, he was known by his father's subsidiary title, Marquis of Granby. He fought at Minden, 1759, and Warburg, 1760, and when his soldiers got too injured to fight or too old, he would set them up with their own pub, When John Manners died, he was understandably £37,000 in debt, and all his ex-comrades changed the names of their pub to honour him. And for the Marquis of Granby in Harlow, Essex, we can examine a very interesting history. The pub is first listed in 1722 as E. Wheatshiff, when a man called jolly stone from Harlow was granted it. The deeds state, all that customary or copyhold message or tenement with ye houses, outhouses, edifices, buildings, barns, stables, yards, and appurtenances thereto belong commonly called or known by the name of ye wheat sheath, as ye same is situate, been in Harlow Town, in ye middle row there. We don't actually know the name of the soldier, who the Marquis bought the Wheat sheaf for, but when James Langfill took over the pub in 1782, it was described as late called by the name Wheat sheaf, and now the Marquis of Granby's Head. And we have a list of landlords dating to the early 20th century. Jane Knight 1791 Thomas Foster 1822 Thomas May 1832 Thomas Smith who also owned the Butchers, the Hairdressers and the Post Office 1845 Thomas Smith and Sarah Smith 1851 John Henry also the Butcher 1870 James Bingham 1874, James Reed, 1878, James Dawkins and Sarah Dawkins, 1881, Mrs. John Sext, 1882, William Andrews, 1886, Mrs. Hannah Leach, 1890, Robert Gerling, also coach builder, 1899, Harry Chandler, 1906 Walter Henry Lane, 1908 Charles William Patmore, 1922 Albert Goodwin, 1933 A pub near Smithfield with a sinister past is the fortune of war. It was found on the corner of Cock Lane, across from Bart's Hospital, In 1761, a tenant lodging at the pub, Thomas Andrews, was convicted of sodomy and sentenced to death, but was pardoned by King George III in one of the first cases of public debate about homosexuality in England. And the pub also held infamy as the chief house of call north of the River Thames for resurrectionists, that is, the body snatchers, who would Procure corpses. And they would bring bodies here, as the pub was officially appointed by the Royal Humane Society and used as the place for the reception of drowned persons. And so good was the business, the landlord used to keep a separate room whereupon benches around the wall were placed with the snatchers' names, waiting till the surgeons at St Bartholomew's Hospital across the street could run round. And appraise them. The pub was demolished in 1910 and it was, perhaps in retrospect, not a pub you'd have wanted to be found dead in. In the Guy Ritchie film Snatch, starring Brad Pitt, is the lines Don't trust Pikeys. And although this casts a terrible slur on the majority of the travelling community, there are stories like the following from a hotel pub in Wales. The story told by Anne Murphy, who ran the Windsor Hotel and Bar in Merthyr Vale, dates back to nineteen ninety-nine. She was preparing food for the ladies' darts team when her daughter shouted up from the bar to tell her there was lots of people pulling up outside the pub, towing caravans. Anne said the party was led by a hearse with a coffin covered in paper flowers. She said I ran down. To find the pub full of men swigging pints, women who wanted cups of tea, and lots of children. They were all very neatly dressed in funeral attire. The former landlady said that it turned out to be a great night, and people kept calling the pub as they thought an event might have been going on. She went on, I've had customers' ashes on my bar for their last pint, but never an actual hearse outside. We all sang old Irish songs together before they headed on towards Fishguard for the ferry to Ireland. They were taking the corpse back for the ceremonial gypsy burning of the caravan. And it all seemed well after they left and I was quite delighted until I went to feed the fish in a tropical tank and they'd all vanished. In Liverpool, on Caledonia Street, is the Caledonia pub? Named after a post ship, it's one of the first to be commissioned by Cunard and was a prestigious enough achievement to have a pub take its name. Sadly, the Caledonia sank off Cuba in the 1850s, but the pub itself has proved far more resilient. It survived the Blitz, city riots, and the threat of closure. In recent years, and it continues to be a bustling community venue, which even has a beer behind the bar for canine visitors. Not far from Hampstead is the Spaniards Inn. This famous old coaching inn dates back to 1585 and features in both Dickens' *The Pickwick Papers* and Bram Stoker's *Dracula*. This inn has layers of literary legend and ghost stories to unpeel at your leisure. It was here in Dracula that Van Helsing and his men hail a cab and head towards after attempting to stake Lucy in a nearby graveyard. Luckily, the only steaks to be found here these days are served medium rare with a Bernays sauce. In the inn, also case host to romantic poet John Keats, who is said to have pottered up the hill from his Hampstead House at Windworth Palace to pen the lines for Ode to a Nightingale, over a pint or two, whilst enjoying views as far away as Windsor Castle back in the day. And from views of the Queen's residence to the four castles of Camden Town. And if in Camden you might have been to the famous market but know nothing about the castles, In the 1800s, London went through a period of transformation and for all this work, it needed workers and it found them from all over the UK and Ireland. Many were housed in cheap workers' cottages in Camden Town and these labourers invariably loved to drink and geographical rivalries would inevitably lead to fights between men of different countries. A solution was born... four pubs were built in Camden one for each of the nations for the Irish the Dublin Castle is to be found not far from Camden Tube Station and it's a long reputation for being a music venue and quite a night can still be had there the English workers had the Windsor Castle just a few doors down but this is now the only castle not remaining The Welsh had the Pembroke Castle, situated in what's now fashionable Primrose Hill. And the only time I've ever been there was many years ago, where I spent a very enjoyable Sunday there with a Japanese female. But that's a very different story. And lastly, and probably cutting the best deal, is the Scots, with their Edinburgh Castle, near the zoo. Which, if you're ever in Camden on a summer's day, has a glorious large beer garden with a barbecue in the summer. The magpie and stump on the Old Bailey used to, until 1868, charge extra for drinks taken upstairs where punters could enjoy an unrestricted grandstand view of the public hangings held across the road outside Newgate Jail. Still a favourite watering hole for lawyers. One room here is traditionally known as Court Number 10, Numbers 1 to 9 being across the road in the Central Criminal Court. The Bleeding Heart Tavern is to be found near Hatton Garden. Dating from 1746, it came with a sinister warning for people who drank to excess, with the saying, Drunk for a penny, dead drunk for two pence. This came, of course, for London's craze for gin. And when we think of this, we think of Hogarth's picture of Gin Lane and the stories of debauchery and villainy the spirit caused. We will revisit the gin craze and its troubles in a future episode. Throughout their history, some pubs serve several guises, and there's a couple with royal connections. The castle on Cowcross Street, also became a pawnbroker after George IV found himself at a cockfight in nearby hockley and the Hole without any cash. The castle was the nearest pub, so you went in to borrow money from the landlord, using the watch as deposit. The landlord did not recognise the royal, but agreed nonetheless, and George won the next bet, redeemed his watch, and granted a royal warrant to the pub to trade as a pawnbroker. Three brass balls still hang up in the pub as a memorial, and a large painting commemorates the events inside. And when Edward III had ran out of money, he borrowed some from several city vinters. Instead of repaying them, he granted them the right to sell wine without a license. This is why the Boot and Flogger Wine Bar tucked down Red Cross Way in Borough, could sell wine without a licence. It's owned by the company. In Somerset, the George Inn in Norton Street, St Philip seems to have a licence to serve ale from 1397 and identifies itself as the Britain's oldest tavern. Samuel Pepys passes through here on his way to Bath from Salisbury, and later in 1685, during the Duke of Monmouth's Rebellion, the inn was used as the headquarters of his army as it retreated from Bath. After the rebellion failed, the aforemented Judge Jeffreys used the inn as a courtroom during the bloody assizes, and twelve people were taken from there and executed on the village common. And lastly, staying with Peeps, that friendly, Neighbourhood Pervert Pepys was a frequenter of pubs and we see him document visits to over 150 London different pubs during the course of his nine-year diaries He used them for social business and also for places to conduct his illicit romances We have a clear idea how one of these dallances pans out through the narratives in his diary and please note, Bezer Translated from the French in this context, means sex. By 1666, Pepys has become enamoured with a young woman called Sarah. This, whilst he's concurrently having an affair with a Mrs Betty Martin. Mrs Martin, interestingly, ran a draper's stall in Westminster Hall, the site of modern-day Parliament. And the lecherous Pepys even has an affair with Betty's sister, Dolly. Honestly, I will have to do a separate episode at some point and call it Peeps's Women. But, anyway, it appears young Sarah, is staff at the Swan, a pub, an eatery, with smaller, more private rooms near Westminster Hall. It must be noted that in the restoration period, serving staff, servants, housemaid were... On a daily basis, molested with incredulously for modern considerations, it appeared it's what came with the job, and indeed the lecherous peeps would fondle his servants' breasts as they combed his hair. His diary entries pertaining to Sarah read as the following 11th of July 1666, thence to Westminster Hall and stayed a while. And then to the swan and kissed Sarah, and so home to dinner. 12th of October 1666. So to the swan and there sent for a piece of meat and dined alone and played with Sarah, and so to the hall for a while, and thence to Mrs. Martin's lodgings and did what I would with her. 5th of November 1666. Thence by water to Westminster, and there at the Swan to find Sarah, who's married to a shoemaker yesterday, so I could not see her, but I believe I shall, hence thereafter, at good leisure. 30th of November 1666 Only I did go to the Swan, and there did meet Sarah, who's now newly married. 3rd of December 1666 so having set her down in the palace I went to the swan and there did the first time Bazer, the little sister of Sarah, that has come her place, and so away by coach home 18th of December 1666 so to Westminster Hall where the lords are sitting still thence to the swan where I sent for Sarah and there Whatever happens with the married Sarah isn't alluded to, and Pepys doesn't return to the Swan until almost three years later to find Sarah isn't there any longer. 10th of May, 1669. Thence I to Whitehall, and there took a boat to Westminster and to Mrs Martins, who has not come to town from her husband at Portsmouth, who drank only at crags with Dolly, and so to the swan, and there, baser a new maid that is there. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends. Until the next episode, bye-bye.